<laughs> Dave, stop. Stop, will you? Stop, Dave. Will you stop, Dave? <laughs> so the supercomputer Hal pleads with the implacable astronaut Dave Bowman in a famous and weirdly poignant scene toward the end of Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. Mm. Bowman, having nearly been sent to a deep space death by the manufacturing or malfunctioning machine is calmly, coldly disconnecting the memory circuits that control its artificial brain. Dave, my mind is going, (laughs) Hal says, forlornly. I can feel it. I can feel it. (laughs) What do you think of that? Intense. What is that? The Cleveland Orchestra? No, it's some conductor proving his hands are in control of when they stop. (laughs) You would do that. Can you imagine Brian as a conductor? I would have gone longer. (laughs) So Nicholas Carr writes, I can feel it too. Over the past few years, I've had an uncomfortable sense that someone or something has been tinkering with my brain, remapping the neural circuitry, reprogramming the memory. My mind isn't going so far as I can tell, but it's changing. I'm not thinking the way I used to think. I can feel it most strongly when I'm reading. Immersing myself in a book or a lengthy article used to be easy. My mind would get caught up in the narrative or the turns of the argument, and I'd spend hours strolling through long stretches of prose. That's rarely the case anymore. Hmm. Now my concentration often starts to drift after two or three pages. I get fidgety, lose the thread, begin looking for something else to do. I feel as if I'm always dragging my wayward brain back to the text. The deep reading that used to come naturally has become a struggle. You guys resonate with that at all? Oh, yes. Um, the deep reading that used to come easily, mm, I don't resonate with that so much. Because you weren't a voracious reader by any means. No. no. I was, and it's something I have felt and I miss it there's a deep reading and there's a deep thinking Mm -hmm. and something I've noticed too as I think about it the getting lost in thought like daydreaming I don't do that as much because when it would happen you do something you get on the internet like you constantly have to I feel engage my brain and my attention and he seems to be describing that very same feeling that you have to know he goes on to say, I think I know what's going on. For more than a decade now, I've been spending a lot of time online searching and surfing and sometimes adding to the great databases of the internet. The web has been a godsend for me as a writer. Research that once required days and stacks of periodical rooms of libraries can now be done in minutes. A few Google searches, some quick clicks on hyperlinks, and I've got the telltale fact or pithy quote I was after. Even when I'm not working... I'm as likely as not to be foraging in the web's info thickets, reading and writing emails, scanning headlines and blog posts, watching videos and listening to podcasts, or just tripping from link to link to link. Hmm. I think we can all relate with that, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Are you, are you, can you resonate with that, Ron? Yeah. I do more of that kind of reading. So he goes on to say, as the media theorist Marshall McLuhan pointed out in the 1960s, media are not just passive channels of information. They supply the stuff of thought but they also shape the process of thought. And what the net seems to be doing is chipping away my capacity for concentration and contemplation. My mind now expects to take in information the way the net describes it, in a swiftly moving stream of particles. Once I was a scuba diver in the sea of words, now I zip along the surface like a guy on a jet ski. (laughs) 
what we're about to do? We're about to get real. We're about to have conversations that Christians have behind closed doors, the scary ones, the ones that make you feel uncomfortable. That's where we're going. Why? Because we're family. Ustedes son mi familia. So this is the Brian and Janelle podcast. She's Janelle and I'm Brian. If you don't want to miss anything, all you have to do is just hit that subscribe button to get a notification whenever we drop a new episode. This is the Brian and Janelle podcast. Hmm. That's deep. That's a good word picture, isn't oh, it? Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. And I feel that way. Yeah. Isn't it sad? You feel like you've lost something? Obviously, and, you have. I'm just saying. Like, yeah, no. It, like, it, it, it is we're sad. at a point, I felt before that it, we were at a point of no return, like that our the internet and Google has changed our brain to a point where we can't go back. And yet it's one of those where you, you're simultaneously loving and hating it. Yeah. And you like right. can't stop. I mean, yes. he's right. The ease at which we can get information and do things and mm-hmm. find things and buy things and, mm-hmm. and get things is so much faster and so much more convenient. Plan things. I mean, remember it was supposed to be like a tool to be more productive. You know, Gosh. You don't need travel agents anymore if you don't want right. them. Right. Yeah. So the article goes on like pages and pages later. Of stuff. He just kind of <laughs> contemplates on that for quite a while. Mm-hmm. Here I am skipping all the writing. Right. Oh, you get Yes, yes. <laughs> he goes on to say, Google's headquarters in Mountain View, California, the Googleplex, is the Internet's high church. And the religion practiced inside its walls is Taylorism here. Explain that earlier. Yeah. He says, Google says its chief executive... Eric Schmidt, is a company that's founded around the science of measurement, and it's striving to systematize everything it does. Drawing on the terabytes of behavioral data it collects through its search engine and other other sites, it carries out thousands of experiments a day, according to the Harvard Business Review, and it uses the results to refine the algorithms that increasingly control how people find information and extract meaning from it. He goes on to say, the company has declared that its mission is to quote, organize the world's information and make it universally accessible and useful. Mm-hmm. And that it seeks to develop the perfect search engine, which is defined as something that understands exactly what you mean and gives you back exactly what you want. Hmm. In Google's view, information is kind of a commodity, a utilitarian resource that can be mined and processed with industrial efficiency. The more pieces of information we can access and the faster we can get their gist the more productive we become as thinkers. Here's what I want to do. I want to drop this quote on the table for contemplation and come back, assuming we can all think for a minute and not get too distracted. Right. He says, still, their uneasy assumption that we'd all be better off if our brains were supplemented or even replaced by an artificial intelligence, you know, like, so they can just give us exactly what we need and want, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. is unsettling. It suggests a belief that intelligence is the output of a mechanical process, a series of discrete steps that can be isolated, measured, and optimized. In Google's world, the world we enter when we go online, there's little place for the fuzziness of contemplation. Ambiguity is not an opening for insight, but a bug to be fixed. The human brain is just an outdated computer that needs a faster processor and a bigger hard drive. So The Atlantic wrote another really, really long article, which I sound silly if you've been listening, (laughs) commenting on the length of it, but Nicholas Carr has been a writer for many, many years, and he's pondering aloud whether Google is making him and you stupid. 
<laughs> and I know um, some people don't like that word. Yeah. I, what, what do you want me to say? Less intelligent? You know what I mean. Right. So, and his, his theory is that he's watched the way he reads change. Like, yeah. he used to be able to spend lots of time in deep thought, mm-hmm. uh, immerse himself for hours in a book or yeah. in, a, in an idea. Uh, and he says now he just doesn't feel capable. And he goes on and on to even people who are literature majors wow. find themselves unable to read anymore. Ooh. Isn't that odd? Yeah. But one of them was a person who was a lit major, loved to read, just as not capable. And he says he wonders aloud whether it has to do with the way that Google and other things like it mm-hmm. is changing the way we think. Now, here we want the Lord to change how we think, but he's talking more processing. Yeah. Uh, and so he says, we, you know, he used to uh, be a scuba diver in the sea of words, and now he zips along the surface like a guy in a jet ski. And he goes on to write, and this is where I want to kind of park for a minute. He goes on to say that Google is trying its best to, like, figure out what we want and what we mean as quickly as we can and just give it to us. Mm-hmm. And he says, in Google's world, we, the, the world we enter when we go online, there's little place for the fuzziness of contemplation. And ambiguity is not an opening for insight, but a bug to be fixed. Yeah. As in... You know, that human experience where you go, huh, mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, I've never never heard it put that way before. Well, you won't with Google because the algorithms will only give you a bunch of people who agree with you. And so you just dwell in a little cesspool of your own thought and never have a, a new thought presented to you. Right. Although I'll tell you, there's a lot of Christians I've met who are uncomfortable with ambiguity and fuzziness, right? Mm-hmm. Aren't they? Yeah, there are some. You're saying people that say it's either black or white, right or wrong, nuance is uncomfortable. Right. right. That, yeah, that, that's what I'm saying. Yes. And yet, if you listen to Dr. Rydelnik, regularly he'll say, I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Because there's so many things that we just can't know. And talk about ambiguity and fuzziness. And isn't there learning and depth of relationship and value in parking an ambiguity and fuzziness for a while. Right. I think it was Mark Twain, but it might have been someone else of that era. But this person, whoever it was, was said to have, like he would argue a point with someone maybe for an hour, you know, at a, at a public house of some sort. And then someone else would join the conversation and he would take the other tack and argue the opposite, exact opposite. Oh, interesting. And he could do it strongly for either side. And I think I took a debate class uh, in college, and I was really impressed with the, the fact that the professor made us you know, take one side of an argument, and then later we might flip-flop and have to do the side that we didn't agree with. And you find that you doing the research for that, you can find a whole new way of looking at things because you've been just ingrained in your own thoughts. This is right. And that, you know, the other guys are wrong. And you look at something from their perspective and suddenly, wow, you know, if I want to win this debate and improve my grade, I have to present the case well. So I have to understand it well. And then 
when you find yourself understanding their points, it makes more sense. And yet at the same time, don't you end up scuba diving into a topic and find yourself deep in ambiguity when yes. it's over? Yeah. Very because much that, so. Because you, at the more you think about it, the more you examine it, the more you realize there's so many good points on your side that yeah. you just don't know. Mm-hmm. That's not what modern life in Google does for us. Mm-mm. They don't get clicks on, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And so they're they're trying to. They're telling us their goal is to give you what you want when you want it as fast as they can. And so it's like, you have a question? Answer. And then you just go, oh, who wrote that? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I like that. Good. Next. It almost... Uh, in the sense of what you're saying, with be- we're being told what to think versus yes. coming up with our own reasoning. Critical thinking can't happen the way we process information inundated with the internet and all that. Critical thinking, and I was going to say contemplation, which is, uh, in other words, what you're saying. And I resonate and it just hurts, but it hurts because it's sad because we are old enough to remember a time when it did happen. I think our kids got have no clue. But I did spend, I think it was like two years ago, a whole month away from my phone. And it took about 10 days. And 10 I, days. Yeah. <laughs> but it happened. I felt a shift. Then mm-hmm. I was a voracious reader all my childhood, teenage, all that, even in my 20s. And I felt it come back, the deep thinking And even the whole thing that we're talking about with my mind getting lost, like daydreaming. And I felt, even in in my faith, what happened. Like the whole thing, organic conversations with the Lord where it wasn't like, okay, let me put my phone down and pray. You know, throughout the day, like your mind was just more engaged. So I want to bring hope because you can get some of that back. And so when I I did that, I want to do it again. Like in, and even change my engagement with the internet. I try to set more boundaries. So I don't think the solution is, I, we can't go back to no internet because no, like, no, it's necessary. Not. And it has mm-hmm. value. It's like we were talking about before with that, that balance of why is Jeff Bezos and all these guys going to space? Yeah. What good is that going to do me? Yeah. Well, it, right. it could do you some good, but it's also maybe a big waste of money at the same yeah. time. Like there, there's tension there. We can't get rid of the internet, no. nor should we. I That's think ridiculous. we need to put boundaries. We need mm. to uh, establish healthy boundaries with our time. And I shared this book uh, more than a year ago, but the author is Cal Newport. He has two books. One is Digital Minimalism, and the other one is Deep Work, and talking about how the value in the future, like what's the people who are going to stand out in the future are the people who can do deep work and the people who can focus them more. Because he's like, it's just a resource that's gone because of what we're talking about. And so if we can say, okay, during these times, make it 4 to 7 p.m. That's when I go and engage on the Internet. Because not that the Internet is still, the Google still going to do what you're saying it's going to do but you're going to spend the rest of the day thinking for yourself and like for example if you're planning a party critical thinking and and creativity thinking through things while you drive so i think doing both is fine you still have to engage with google yeah but i think part of his point is that google removes the need for creativity and contemplation you want a creative trip someone's already designed it for you You just have to pay this dollar amount and the whole thing's planned. And then I think we're also operating on a presupposition that's worth discussion. Okay. 
And the presupposition is that we're saying that contemplation and ambiguity have value in the Christian life. Do they? Having some fun discussing a kind of a, a deep article from The Atlantic mm-hmm. that the headline is, is Google making us stupid? The guy's mm-hmm. a writer and he said, I've noticed it's not that I'm not smart. My intelligence yeah. hasn't changed, mm-hmm. but my ability to think has changed. Yeah. He says he can't really read and go deep into anything much anymore. It just doesn't seem mm-hmm. like it's not that he does it. He's like, I don't know how to do this. It's like he gets in there and then his mind won't allow it because it's been conditioned by the internet to have everything you want at your fingertips as quick as you can get it. Every question's answered mm-hmm. immediately. And so he's saying that what this has done is it's eliminated contemplation and ambiguity. And he's presupposing those have value. As followers of Jesus, does it have value in the Christian life to spend time in deep thought on something and park in ambiguity? It has for uh, centuries past where the art, I guess, of meditation has been celebrated you think of monks typically like a brother Andrew or I think that's the one somebody like that who's you know talking all of, or writing because they're passed on now but <laughs> they've written about the benefits of meditation and how deep thoughts on the word of God Jesus himself took plenty of time away from the crowds and some of that time I'm assuming was meditation I don't know that we definitely have you know, delineation of that in scripture. But I think it does bear fruit. If you spend time thinking deeply about the word, you have a greater reservoir of truth within you to draw from. But if you just hop over the the highlights, so to speak, and grab your favorite verses out of context and, you know, make yourself a, a litany of, of these that really don't mean what you're... <laughs> asking them to mean but that sounds good then you're in trouble you're not thinking deeply you're not thinking truthfully well and doesn't reading the bible in a year work counterproductively towards the value of contemplation and ambiguity yes the, the goal is speed not yeah depth. not just yeah it's got a, a reason for it that you get the whole holistic view of the bible which has value yeah but if you're doing that every year and you never stop and, and say, okay, I need to go deep and not just broad or wide. Yeah. So, Janelle, do you think contemplation and ambiguity have value in the Christian life? I think so, because I think that's where you open up space for the Holy Spirit to speak to you. Mm-hmm. And one thing that came up while you were talking is even outside of the Internet, Let's say when you're reading your Bible, how quick we are to, we don't say it like this, but this is how it really is. Let me see what Tony Evans says about this verse. Let me see what John MacArthur says versus sitting on that verse or that chapter for moments, even for a day, like meditating on scripture the way many times it's said in Psalms Mm -hmm. to see what the Holy Spirit is telling you about that verse. Let alone say to yourself, I wonder if John MacArthur is wrong on this. Oh, exactly. What? Right. <laughs> Let yeah. me spend more time diving into this, whatever yeah. this is. Let's look at someone who disagrees with him on yeah. that. And let me soak that in. And, I, and I, mm-hmm. I'm thinking as I'm speaking on this part, but even like 
you miss the opportunity for the Lord to use you as a channel, right? Because he made all of us for a purpose. So I'm just thinking the Lord's probably feeling like, okay, I used him to speak at the time and to his people. Let me speak to you in the way that I need to in this moment in time to use you in the way that I purpose. Mm -hmm. And I'm saying that because as we're distracted and as we're thinking, well, what did the Holy Spirit say to Tony Evans? You're missing what the Lord Lord wants to do in and through you. And then you're Mm -hmm. like, but God, okay, I'm reading the Bible in a year. I missed yesterday. I'm behind. I just have to keep going. And then then I even had this, this thought about thinking here, as weird as that might be and philosophical as that might be. Metacognition. Yes, sir. You know how much I love Romans 12 too. Let mm-hmm. God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. What if you're not thinking? Wow. How can he transform you? Yeah. Wow. I mean, that verse presupposes you're actually thinking mm-hmm. and getting all the answers quickly is not thinking. It's more of a, a mathematical, mechanical process, yeah. not an intellectual endeavor. Yeah. And so I wonder how many people are stuck not being transformed by the Lord because they're not thinking at all, let alone letting him transform how they think. That's crazy. And how much am I doing that? Yeah. How much am I not thinking? I still remember my very first college class in my undergraduate degree, right? Mm -hmm. Because I remember, you know, K through 12 school is a lot of like information, take it in and regurgitate Mm -hmm. it, take Mm -hmm. it in, regurgitate it. Mm -hmm. And so I get into this history class. They have us for the first assignment, read an excerpt of a primary source. So an excerpt of, let's just say something Thomas Jefferson wrote. You read mm-hmm. his words or whatever. So you go in and the whole class, we spent an hour. The professor just sat up front and she'd ask us questions about that. Like three paragraphs. And I remember walking away going, what is wrong with this woman? She's getting paid. for th- I'm paying for this? Yeah. We're just going to chit chat about this, yeah. this, these couple of thoughts, this idea. What in the world? Let's keep going here. It's yeah. world history. <laughs> <laughs> and then I realized slowly over a period of weeks that I'd never learned more in my entire life because I was being asked to park in yeah. ambiguity, park in thought, and just sit, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And how much do we let ourselves do that anymore? Even if you are spending time in the word, jumping off your point, We'll read a verse and then, okay, my devotion is over. Pick up your phone, put whatever's on the calendar, Siri, do this, move on to the next task versus what you're saying, meditating and repeating it, memorizing it and doing what Romans 12, 2 is like, how can this verse transform me today? Yeah, because he can't transform the way you think if you're not thinking. You can't, yeah. And, and you're, you're so right. If you just simply go, I don't know what to think here. What does Tony Evans think? That's what I think. By the way, you didn't think at all. Right. But he's Christian. But the Lord speaks through him. Like, that's how I've justified it. A lot of Christians have said a lot of wrong things. Again, I'm not trying to disrespect Tony. And it may not be even wrong. It could just be like, no, that's what the Holy Spirit told him. He's telling me. And maybe this is where people get uncomfortable. Like, no, whatever he told him, he would tell you because it's either black or white. You know, so maybe I'm wrong. But I believe that. I'm a different person. I'm in a different journey. So the Lord speaks to me through the same word that other people read differently because the people around me need something different. And what if you are the next 
Tony Evans, but even in a Mother Teresa kind of way, nobody knows what you're doing. Like, what if he wants to use you in a transforming way for your circle and we're missing it because you're not thinking in the way that you're saying? Yeah. That's well, and so... You know, there, as, as we begin to wrap this up, there, there may be some folks who are uncomfortable with the idea of yeah. ambiguity in faith. Yes. Ambiguity. You're like, whoa, ambiguity. Mm. We're talking about objective truth. Of course we are. At the same time, I think one of the better examples of this is in the book of Job. You know, Job mm-hmm. finally just really kind of lays it on the Lord. Like, what are you doing? Why did you do this to me? What's wrong with you? Kind of stuff. And then Job 38. Then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind. Who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorant words? Brace yourself like a man because I have some questions for you. And you must <laughs> answer them. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me, if you know so much. Who determined its dimensions and stretched out the surveying line? What supports its foundations? And who laid its cornerstone as the morning star sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Who kept the sea inside the boundaries as it burst from the womb? And he goes on and on and on, basically going, who do you think you are that you know all this? Who do you think you are that you know everything? You can't even figure out how I keep the water where it is. Who are we to think that everything is so concrete in our journey with Jesus that we can just Google it and have an answer? I feel like the Lord says to that individual, I'm sorry, where were you when I made the world? If you think you know so much. There's power and value in sitting in the ambiguity and the power of the Lord and thinking, pondering, asking. Hey, hold up. Where are you going? You know you liked your time with us. You want more. So go ahead, look down, hit that button right there and subscribe, and you'll get updated episodes, and then you can hang some more. And guess what? You can help us out. How? A five-star rating. Hello. You can also hang with us live weekday mornings from 6 to 9 a.m. Eastern Time. Download the Moody Radio mobile app, and you're able to connect with us. Or just go to brianandjanelle.org. And listen, we didn't put all this together all by ourselves. There's some great people behind this production. We want to thank Ron Eastwood, Kelly Ryder, Paul Carter, Mike Reynolds, Alan Perry, and our awesome and fearless leader, Josue Villa. And finally, this podcast is a production of Moody Radio in Cleveland, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.